You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, uh, there are certain passages of scripture that I think it's hard to say thanks be to God after. Uh, that's probably one of them. Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a tough passage for us to handle today. I think, you know, if we were to go back um, and, and retitle the first half of this little uh, sermon series, maybe we would call it the power of positive thinking, right? Because uh, every week it's just been one hard truth after another building up. And today uh, we get to once again a pretty difficult truth to handle. Uh, but as we're studying Romans, um, one thing that, that I've noticed is that it's, it's kind of been building kind of like a court case almost. And I, I know for my own heart and perhaps for you as well, uh, you love courtrooms. Uh, you love TV dramas that uh, show us our, our desire to see justice and to, to see people on trial. And it's not just uh, like dramas, it's true crime as well, which is sweeping the nation and has been for, for years now. Uh, and just to give some examples of this, just how much we are in, in tune with this idea of trials and justice in the courtroom, I want to share a few uh, cases that have been widely known. The first one is Ted Bundy's. What a start to a Mother's Day uh, <laughs> sermon, right? Ted Bundy's 1979 trial was the first of its kind to really be nationally televised. Now, it, it was crazy in so many ways, one being that he actually represented himself, um, but it was viewed by millions who turned in to watch this case, and it really, as, as many would look at the history of true crime say that it was the first of its kind. It kind of birthed this new kind of coverage of true crime shows. Now, from Ted Bundy uh, in this experience, there have been nine different TV shows and documentaries about him, which just shows our fascination with this, right? Most recently, there was a Netflix show um, starring the once innocent uh, High School Musical star, Zac Efron, as Ted Bundy, right? Uh, he's come a long way since his days on High School Musical. The next one is O.J. Simpson, another incredibly famous trial. Uh, you have this pro football player who was, a, who was a college star, he was an actor, he had everything you could possibly imagine, and then he has this fall from grace in 1994. And he's, he's uh, accused of murder, and he goes on trial in 1995, and, and they estimate that during this trial, particularly during this scene right here, which is kind of one of the famous scenes when his attorney says, if it doesn't fit, don't, uh, you, you must acquit, uh, kind of this idea that the glove was the, 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 you know, the, the thing that would either calls him to be accused or not. Uh, during this moment, it estimated that 150 million people tuned in. 60% of the American population watched this trial. And if, if those two are, are really the big ones, well, here's one that's a little bit less, but still, um, still you know, interesting, uh, was Lindsay Lohan uh, in 2010. <laughs> Did y'all even know she was on trial in 2010? Uh, she was. Um, she uh, was on trial for way lesser crimes than the other ones. It wasn't quite to the same extent. But what was unique about this one was it was the first one streamed on the internet. So TMZ live streamed her trials. And, and over 3 million people tuned in. And, and what has gone viral since then is what you see here is that she was sobbing uncontrollably during the entire trial. Uh, and there's pictures of her and, and articles and unfortunately memes made of her. Uh, I do think that she's trying to make a comeback now. I believe there was a Christmas movie that was out this year that rivaled a Hallmark cheesiness. But hey, she's trying. Uh, so, so here are three examples. I want to give you these examples because all three of these examples show us our fascination with trials. 
We tune into these things. We're entertained by them. Millions and millions of people watch them. We're fascinated by the trials and the accusations and the crimes and, and what will justice be served. And we look at these things and we tune in from a distance. And, and dare I say, we actually enjoy being captured up in these trials. Now, the question is, what if the roles were reversed? What happens when the cameras would actually turn on us? What would happen if we were the ones on trial? What if today we realized that the trial of the century was not OJ, but it was actually us? It's actually all of us. You see, it, it might be hard for us to handle, and as Jack Nicholson famously said, you want the truth, well, you can't handle the truth, right? This morning, the truth might be hard to handle because it hits us right in the face. Because the truth is that we are on trial. And the truth is that the verdict of that trial, apart from Jesus, is very, very bleak. And Paul, during Romans 1 and 2 and now Romans 3, he is like a trial attorney, and he has come to the close of his argument. He has methodically and logically been building this case against us, against himself, against all of humanity. And what we're going to find here in Romans 3, that he's going to land the plane. And in his closing argument, he's going to remind us once again that it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how we were brought up, it doesn't matter how many times we read our Bible, it doesn't matter how much money we have, it doesn't matter if we go to church, it doesn't matter if we're religious or not, it doesn't matter. We are all equally condemned and under sin. That's the verdict. That at the end of the day, the trial and the cameras have been put on us, and like a grand chess master, Paul's going to look at these 20 verses, and he's going to build a case against us to the point where verse 19, as Kristen just read, says that our mouths will be silent. It will be as if he says, checkmate, and we have nothing else to say. He will close his case on humanity this morning. Now, it seems pretty bleak, right? And really, the main idea of this passage seems kind of bleak at first. And that's simply straight from God's word here, that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. It may seem harsh at first to say this. It may seem cruel to some of us for us to, to hear this. But what I want you to see and track with me this morning is that we're going to see the most loving and merciful par, par, uh, prosecutor ever in a courtroom. Because what we're going to see today is Paul is not giving this verdict because he wants to be cruel to us, because he wants to crush us. What we're going to see today is this is actually going to show us our need for the gospel. We're going to see today, this is going to open up the door to show us just how much we need Jesus and how merciful and gracious he is to meet us in our need. And so Paul, as he puts us on trial, he's going to give three things today, and we're going to look at this. Number one, he's going to give us the indictment. All right, let's go to flow straight from the text. We're going to see the indictment against all of humanity. Number two, we're going to see the evidence that he builds upon that indictment. And number three, we're going to ask the question, do we have any defense? Is there any defense against this indictment and the evidence given against humanity that no one is righteous. Now, as we begin this loving, loving, loving passage this morning uh, that is just filled with so much encouragement already, I can see it on your faces. Let's go ahead back and just recap a little bit of what we've been studying in Romans chapter 1 and 2 leading up to this point. Now, we said the beginning of Romans is kind of some hard medicine to swallow. It's very difficult. As has been said uh, over the last few weeks, Paul is giving this scathing review, this view of humanity that's just, it just seems terrible, right? It, it seems uh, so, so bad, right? We wouldn't put this in the positive translation of the Bible. It just seems too negative for us to ever dwell upon too long. And, and essentially what Paul was getting at is that both those who are irreligious, those who wander away from God, those who rebel from God, th those who live this crazy lifestyle that suppress the truth about God, they're under God's judgment. 
But then he pivots to chapter 2 and he says, even those who are moral, even those who pursue moral for their own gain, who are religious or think so that they are pursuing God in that way, even they're under God's judgment. Their, their sin is manifested in a different way. And as, as he explained last week, uh, Ben used the, the story of the prodigal son, which is a great illustration to show Romans 1 and 2. That there's a story that Jesus teaches about this father and this younger son and this older son. And in the story, there's this younger son who he kind of, he kind of is the Romans 1 character, if you will. He wanders away from God. He lives a life of rebellion from God. He, he moves away from his father. And we see that characterized in Romans chapter 1. And then in Romans chapter 2, we see the older son. The older son who thinks that he can earn God's favor, thinks that if he abides by a creed or a set of rules that God will actually owe him, that his father will actually owe him something. And we see that in the story because he gets mad when his father welcomes his younger son back, when his father extends grace. He doesn't understand his need for grace. And Paul says, look, all of us, whether, whether you're religious or you're irreligious, all of us are under God's judgment. All of us are under sin, and all of us are in need of his grace this morning. And so Paul builds this case and then he begins to expound a little bit more on it at the end of chapter 2, specifically dealing with Jews. And he says this at the end of chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is the matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And we said last week, essentially what Paul is getting at here is that religion itself cannot save us. It is not enough. For us to try to use our willpower to adhere to some kind of creed or code or set of rules, our outward expressions, our deeds, they're not enough. We're still under God's judgment, even if that's who we are. Now, why is Paul addressing Jews and Gentiles here? Why is he using that language of the Jews and the Gentiles in these first few chapters? Well, if you look historically at the church in Rome, uh, the, the church in Rome was primarily started by a Jewish community. Jewish believers who believed in the Messiah, believed in Jesus, and they started this church until AD 49, in which the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And so at this point, there were, there were some Gentile uh, Christians who were becoming uh, believers, and the church began to grow as Gentile believers as the Jews were expelled from Rome. And so now the Jews have moved back into Rome, and there's some controversies. There, there's some conflict dwelling. Why did the Gentiles not uh, uh, adhere to the Mosaic Law? And if you're not familiar with, with the law or the Mosaic law, when the Bible refers to that, it's referring back to the Old Testament, to God's word, to, to the law God gave his people on Mount Sinai through Moses. And he tells Moses the law, and this law was, was there to, to kind of govern the people. In one way, it showed them what righteous living was. In another way, it displayed the character of God, his holiness, who he was. And in another sense, it actually helped them see their need for a savior. And so he gives them the law, and, and here we see some tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul's addressing that. And he's saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm addressing this so that you will be united in the gospel. And the first way he's addressing their need for unity is to show them that no one is righteous. Right? Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, no one is righteous. Essentially, he is putting humanity on blast. And he is stating his case here. And he begins his indictment with some... Uh, anticipated rebuttals that perhaps a Jew might have. So this is an imaginary person that Paul has come up with here, and he is saying these might be some common rebuttals that someone would have to my indictment that whether you are a Jew or you are a Gentile, you are still under sin. And this is what he says in verse 1. Well, Paul, if you said that a Jew is not merely one outwardly or circumcision is, is of no value outward or physical, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, Paul responds, he says, much in every way. 
Let me give you one example. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Essentially what Paul is saying here, yes, there is an advantage for the Jews. Because the advantage was they were God's people entrusted with the promises of God. That's a huge advantage. It's a huge privilege to have the word of God. It's a huge privilege for us today to have God's word, right? But that privilege is not enough to save them. The promises made to the patriarchs of the faith, the promises made to the prophets in the Old Testament about the Messiah, Paul is essentially saying they're no good if you don't believe in the promised one. And that's their, that was the issue. That's what they were failing to do. So yes, he says there's clearly an advantage. That advantage isn't enough. And so then he anticipates the next question, perhaps about God's faithfulness. Well, what if some were unfaithful, Paul? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness, or their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, he says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As is written, he quotes David here, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here's the logic, Paul says. Right? Uh, some might come and say, well, God is in covenant with Israel. He's in relationship with Israel. Well, what if Israel was unfaithful? Does that mean God is also unfaithful as well? Since he's pledged himself to, to Israel, since he's pledged himself to the Jews, is he also unfaithful because they're unfaithful? And Paul says, absolutely not. Of course not, right? Because the people of God cannot nullify the faithfulness of God because of their faithlessness. He says, even if everyone is a liar, it does not change the fact that God still proves true. That the actions of people can neither uh, undermine the nature of God nor prevent God from working out his good purposes in this world. Paul puts this to rest. And that's really good news for us this morning. Because the simple truth this morning from this question is that God is always faithful. He is always faithful. He's always true to his word. And so then Paul pivots and says, well, maybe they wouldn't just attack God's faithfulness, but maybe they'll attack his justice as well. In verse 5, this imaginary person comes back and says, but what if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God? What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way, a fleshly way, he says. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Basically the argument is this. Look, if my wickedness actually helps show that God is gracious, then how can he condemn me? Is it just for him to condemn me if my sin actually produces things to the glory of God? And Paul says, absolutely not right? This is, this is actually the kind of gospel that they charge us with, with saying. And, and Paul simply says here, absolutely not, and, and he doesn't give a lot of words here. He just says, their condemnation is just. In other words, what I think Paul's getting at here is anyone who reasons this way, that good can come from their sin, they don't understand God. They just don't. They don't have an understanding of his justice or his holiness. They don't understand uh, the, the impact that their sin has, that as we've seen in Romans 1 and 2, that when we sin, God is just. He has a righteous anger towards that sin. And so Paul essentially says, well, to say that my sin has good results, it cannot excuse my sin at the end, right? Now, why is he saying all this? Well, he gets to verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Perhaps some of them thought they were worse off at this point, right? Perhaps some of them thought, well, if we had all these advantages as being Jews and we still were in faith and we still didn't believe, are we worse off, not just better off? And Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, 
No one is righteous. No, not one. See, the point with all these questions and the wordsmith language here, and, and, and it can be kind of confusing, the simple truth is this, that Paul gets to a place where he says, there is no excuse for Jew or Gentile. The point is, is that when you look at the Bible, humanity was created in God's image to be in a right relationship with him, a righteous relationship with him, a, a relationship where we would reflect God's character and his value. We'd seek to do what is right and just in his eyes. And the Old Testament defines this, right? In Deuteronomy, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he gives them his words so that they will do exactly what Jesus says we can sum up the law in doing, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's right. It's a righteous relationship with God. It's a right relationship with God that he is our God and we are his people. But Paul has already shown us in Romans 1 and 2 that we have turned away from that. We have lived as if he doesn't exist. We have rather lived for ourselves than him. And Paul says because of that, we are going to be held accountable. We're going to be held accountable for being out of relationship with God. That's the indictment here. The indictment is all of us. It's sweeping. It's all-inclusive. It's universal. It's incredibly offensive in, <laughs> to our feelings, right? That God would say that we are all under sin and no one is righteous. And perhaps this, this hits us in a place where we want to resist it because maybe, maybe we're confused by it. Maybe we say, well, God, how can you just put us all in the same kind of category here? How can you say this is, this is all-encompassing, right? Are you, are you saying that a murderer and a shoplifter are, are the same? Are, are you saying that a human trafficker and a liar are the same, God? Well, that's not really what Paul's getting at here. Uh, Paul's not getting at, he's not showing us a picture of God who's up in the sky with a massive Excel spreadsheet, and he's tallying all the good things that you do, and he's going to add them up in the end, and if you have enough, he's going to weigh it, and he's going to say, well, you're better than this person, so you can come in, and you can not one day. That's not what Paul has in view here. And we know innately, because we're image bearers of God, that there's a sense of justice within us, that we know that the actions of a murderer are different from the actions of a shoplifter. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. What Paul's saying is that we've all rejected God. And because of that, it doesn't matter how many times you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. It doesn't matter if you've cheated on your taxes or not. We've all rejected him. Therefore, we're all under sin. See, what Paul's getting at here is it's not a matter of what's outside. It's not a matter of the deeds that we do. It's a matter of the heart. Maybe this is an example that will help you. Uh, let's just say three people decide to get into the ocean off the coast of Maryland, and they decide they're going to swim all the way to the coast of France. And one of those people gets in the water, and they can't swim at all. Another person gets in the water, and they're an okay swimmer. Maybe they swim through high school. And then the third person gets to the swimmer, and they're like an Olympic swimmer. Think Michael Phelps, right? And they get in the water, and the first swimmer takes off, and within a few hundred yards, that swimmer drowns. I just realized this is a very morbid example, but we'll get there, okay? <laughs> the next swimmer gets in, they're the okay swimmer, and, uh, well, they, they get about a mile off the shore, and they drown. And the third swimmer, the Olympic swimmer, Michael Phelps himself, gets in the water, and within 30 and 50 miles, guess what? He also drowns, right? Why? Because it doesn't matter how virtuous their swimming was. There was no way they were going to bridge that gap. And that is what Paul's showing us here, that we are unable to do what is asked of us. There is no way, no matter how virtuous we are, we can never bridge that gap. The, the, the standard which we're being judged is not whether or not we cheated on our taxes. It's not whether or not we're better than, than someone like Ted Bundy. But do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all the time, every single day? 
And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you live for yourself or do you live for God? That's the standard, and this is the indictment. Now, perhaps maybe more so than being confusing to us, it's threatening to us, if we're honest. That this view that Paul's painting here, this indictment is threatening to our souls because we just want to say, I'm not that bad, right? I mean, don't we just want to just scream that at Paul this moment when we hear this? I'm just not that bad. There's some bad people out there. There's some people with no conscience, but I'm a good person, right? And what we do by that is we are declaring ourselves righteous as opposed to allowing God declaring us righteous according to his standards. We say, I'm not a bad person, but I'm a good person. What we're doing is we're saying, I'm going to appoint myself as judge and jury. I'm going to declare myself righteous by my standards. And we do this all the time, don't we? Because we're radically insecure. We're desperately insecure in who we are. We know innately, whether you're a Christian here or not, you know you can't live up to God's standards. That seems, that seems unattainable. So what do we do? We create other standards for ourselves. We create other ways to defend our righteousness, other ways to defend ourselves, to justify our behavior. To look at someone else and say, well, I'm pretty good compared to that person. It was like the time I won my first uh, medal in wrestling when I was 12 in the 84-pound weight division. Uh, <laughs> I was a stud. Um, now, what I, I, I don't tell people oftentimes was that there were only three people in my weight division in that tournament. <laughs> so I won the gold, but I only had to beat out two people. Um, the reason I share that is because in that qualifier tournament, I saw myself as a champion. In that light, I, I was a champion. But that light was very dull and not impressive. And when I qualified for a bigger tournament, I realized that very quickly. I realized that the light I was judging myself was not reality. And oftentimes, that's what we do, right? We see ourselves in a certain light, but when we actually get out of that into the sunlight, we realize that the light in which we judge ourselves by is not reality. And that's why we kind of wait against this democratic process that the Bible's saying here, this democratic notion that we're all living up to the same standard, God's standard, and none of us can do it. So instead, we want to make ourselves more aristocrats. We want to say, well, well, what can I do to set myself apart, to show that I'm actually better than other people, whether it's my social status or physical beauty or wealth or jobs or whatever it is, something that I can turn to someone else and say, I'm actually okay. Paul says, that's not good enough. There's one standard. Do you love God? Do you absolutely love him all the time, every day? Or do you love yourself? That's the indictment. Paul, like a good a prosecutor here, he's going to say, well, you know what? Um, that's pretty strong, but I'm going to give you more evidence just in case you still don't realize how bad you are this morning, okay? <laughs> Paul says, just in case you don't understand just how desperate you are this morning and how much you need Jesus this morning, Paul's going to give a lot of evidence from the Old Testament here to back that up. I'm just going to give a few of those. Number one, verse 11, he says that no one seeks God. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Now, this claim that Paul makes here from the Old Testament seems like an awfully overstated claim. We might think, especially in a place like D.C., that there's tons of people that seek after God, right? There's people who seek him all the time, people who are seeking spiritual things all the time. Well, that's not really what Paul has in mind here. What Paul says, seeking God, what he's saying here is, do you passionately and constantly seek God for himself? Are you seeking God for who he is. Now, there's a lot of ways we can seek God, right? We can seek him intellectually. People love to seek God intellectually. They love to debate his existence. They love to read theology about him. 
They love to, to get in all kinds of intellectual uh, discussions about the very nature of God. And we can seek God out intellectually, but oftentimes that's just a way for us to avoid him personally. Or we can seek him for the benefits he can give us. This is also very common, right? We realize that our life is frantic and we need to root ourselves in a good Christian community, so we seek after that. And that's a really good thing, by the way. Or, or perhaps we realize just how unstable this world is, and so we need to hold on to some kind of transcendent values, and so we seek after God for that, and that's a really good thing to do. But even in those good things, what are we doing? Are we seeking God for who he is, or are we seeking him for something he can give us? Are we seeking him because we can benefit from it? That he can give us some kind of peace in our lives? You see, it's not really seeking God for who he is, it's really about us still. It's seeking God for some kind of benefit that he can give us. So Paul says no one really seeks God without that in mind. But then he says in verse 12, if that's not enough that we don't seek God purely, he says, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, and he says no one does good. So the second evidence he posits against us is that no one is doing good, not even one. No one is doing anything good. Now I think, just want to give a caveat here, okay, because sometimes we can misinterpret this and say, well, does that mean that, you know, Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians are the only people who can do good in this world? That's not what Paul's saying, right? He's not saying we're the only ones who have the bandwidth to be noble or to be selfless or to do a good act to someone. Uh, God shows us in his word that he has sprinkled his grace over all creation, that because we're image bearers, we all to some degree have the capacity to do good things, uh, to be good to others. But what Paul's getting at is something deeper here. What he's saying here is that there's hidden motives in what we do. What he's saying here is that there's hidden motives in our hearts that we don't just act as an act of worship to God. We act because there's some kind of social or emotional or, or even psychological return on our investment. Something that we can get from being good for God or something we can get for being good to other people. Charles Spurgeon, a, a great preacher in the 19th century, he used this illustration. I think it fits so perfectly. He tells a story about a gardener who grew a carrot. And this gardener loved his king so much, the, the king that he lived in his kingdom, that he decided out of a pure act, just a pure act of love for him, he, he wanted to give this carrot to the prince. And this prince or this king, he discerned his motives were absolutely pure. And so in return, he gave this farmer land. Now, in the shadows of what was happening here, there was a nobleman, and he was witnessing all this, and he said to himself, wow, if this guy got real estate for a carrot, what, what do you think I will get for a horse? And so he comes before the king, and he presents his finest horse, and the king discerns that his motives were not pure, and he says this, do you expect me to give to you as I did the gardener? I will not, for you're very different. He says, the gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. So the point is, no one does anything good here because we tend to ap approach God with this kind of utilitarian thinking that through our obedience, through actually us doing something good, we'll get something in return. We view God in this way that he actually serves our needs, and because we do that, Paul says in verse 18, we don't have any fear for God in our eyes. We have no fear for him. Because instead of treating God with the awe and the, the, the joy and the, the, the reverence that he deserves, we treat him kind of as like a personal therapist that we can dial up at any moment whenever we're in need. When the Bible talks about fearing God, it means that he becomes the most precious thing in our life. He becomes so precious to us that we'll do anything to keep from losing him. 
And if you wonder, what, what do you actually fear in this life right now? That's a good litmus test. What are you afraid of losing right now? What if threatened right now in your life, whether it's your, your beauty, your family, your, your job, what, what if something was threatened in your life right now? Would it cause you to question your entire meaning in this life? If so, that's probably what you fear. Because what we fear, we want to hold on to. What we fear, we don't want to let go ever. And what Paul's saying here is that when we, when we have these ulterior motives in seeking good, when we have these ulterior motives in seeking God himself for something that we can gain, we actually don't fear him. We can believe in God, we can be inspired about God, we can know things about him, we can obey him, and we can still not fear him. We can still have no awe or joy or reverence because he's not the most important thing in our life. Paul says this is life for us. No one seeks him, no one does any good, and because of that, it affects our speech and our deeds. Look at verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul's essentially saying is the tongue is so powerful. When we live this life, we're actually not seeking God for who he is. We're not fearing him. Then we will use the tongue in a powerful way. We will use it to build up ourselves by tearing each other down. We will use it to steal from others to self-justify. And Paul says it's so wicked, it has this, this stench of death about it. But then he continues. He says, verse 15, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. You may read that and think, well, that doesn't apply. Like, I don't, I'm not shedding blood. <laughs> like, I'm not a murderer. But the point is, again, he's saying, no, we, we innately, by our nature, we get violent when people get in the way of things we want. When we get what we want, we're very peaceful people. But let someone get in the way of something that we truly want and desire in this life, and we struggle not to hate them. We struggle not to want to wish harm on them. And it comes from this place of jealousy. It comes from a place of insecurity, this need to put people down, whether by our words or our deeds, Paul says. And why do we do that? Because we're trying to declare ourselves righteous. We do that because we're trying to justify ourselves. And in the end, there is no peace, Paul says. When we pursue this kind of lifestyle, apart from Jesus, we can't keep ourselves from tearing each other apart, whether in word or deed. So Paul gets to the end of this, and he says essentially to us, this is the indictment. Here is the evidence I lay before you. I rest my case. And we have to sit here for a moment as we look at these words on the screen, and we have to ask ourselves the question, who is going to have a defense for this type of indictment? Who in this room can stand tall against this evidence? I mean, is there any room for hope for us this morning? And I think Paul begins to give us hope here. That what we need to do in God's courtroom this morning is to sit in silence. Verse 19. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The results of Paul's arguments here is silence. He says every mouth is silent in verse 19. The, 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 the point is, the first step to becoming a person who really fears God, who knows God, who, who wants him at the center of our lives, is to stop defending ourselves. Stop saying yes, yes, yes. 
Stop saying, but what about that person? What about this person? What about me? No, Paul says silence is what we need. We need to sit and absorb the full impact of this indictment this morning. Because hope begins when, when our self-justification ends. And that's what he gets at in verse 19. And he concludes, and he reminds us of God's law again, as we said at the beginning. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that there's no excuses. All are held accountable to God. Essentially, what he's saying is all have sin. He's quoted the Old Testament, he's quoted a bunch of Psalms, and he tells even those Jewish onlookers who are listening to this that, hey, even your own religious writings, the law itself shows you that you have no defense in the presence of God. You have no defense on your own in the presence of God. So Paul gives us one of the clarifying purposes of the law. As we said at the beginning, the law reveals God's character. The law was given as a way to guide us to righteous living, but it's also a way to reveal some good news to us this morning. And what Paul says here, the purpose of the law is to show that you can't live up to it. You can't uphold it perfectly. The indictment is clear. The evidence has been given against you. But what it does show you here is your need for Jesus. It shows you your need for a Savior. That you need a righteousness outside of yourself. And this is the cheery news that we can come to this place. And as we get to verse 19 and 20, the defense begins. And we can stop exhausting ourselves with trying to live up to a standard that we've created. Paul says you can stop exhausting yourself trying to justify your actions because that defense will never hold up in God's court anyways. Paul's saying here you could sit in silence and you could stop exhausting yourself trying to compare yourself to other people, to trying to feel superior over other people in, in the things of your life, like the social status you carry, the wealth you carry, the class that you, you find yourself in. He says you could stop trying to keep score and building yourself up. You can sit in silence and own your sin. And that is where the defense begins, in silence. As we come to the Lord's Supper, what we need to do right now is sit in silence so that we can hear God say the next very word, but. I don't want to get too far into this because this is for next week. It's a preview to come. But the very next words he shares with us is, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed. That might be one of the most beautiful phrases in all the Bible. The whole argument here is that we cannot possibly build back the bridge, that we cannot possibly swim the, the depth of that ocean, that we cannot possibly know the way of peace, that we need someone who does know the way of peace for us, that we need somebody who is outside of us to come and rescue us, that we need someone to pick up our defense because we cannot defend ourselves. We need to do is sit in silence this morning and hear God say, but he has come to pick up your defense this morning. To hear that he has come. And as Peter writes, Christ also suffered once for sins, once for all. Universally, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus, the righteous one, has died for the unrighteous so that his perfect record is now given to you so that you can be righteous in God's court. And the news even gets better than that. Because not only is he the one who substitutes his life for us, John says it this way in 1 John, I'm my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus substitutes his life in our place. He pays that price for our sins, but he's also your defense attorney. 
He's also standing right now in the courtroom. When you're sitting in silence, he stands up right beside the judge of the world, the Father, and he says, when we confess our sins, he advocates for us. He says, this is double jeopardy is attached to this. Father, they are now righteous. They are now innocent. The price has been paid. It is as if they have never committed that sin before. He says, Father, it would be unrighteous, it would be unfair, it would be unjust for you to punish them again because you've already punished me. That's what our advocate does. He stands at the right side of the Father, and we sit down in silence and realize that we can't defend ourselves. He stands up and he defends us constantly by pointing to himself and what he has done on our behalf. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, do you, do you hear this morning God telling you, stop? Just stop trying to defend yourself. Stop trying to live for yourself this morning. Stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to, to, to say, well, I'm, I am good. But to come to our gracious God this morning and realize that it's not about your, your position in life. It's not about what you have done before. God has come to your defense. You simply call out to him, and he has come to your defense. He has wept for you. He has loved you. He has died for you. He has conquered death for you through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.